My name is Claire Press, and this is Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Do you mind if I move the microphone? I just, I need to lounge. <laughs> Devotion, darling. Shut up. I think as humans, we are major forces to be also reckoned with. And I think creativity always flourishes when there is any type of crisis. That's been the absolute pleasure of, is watching talented people who have skills far and beyond mine come together and work collectively. Einstein always said, nature has all the answers. Just look to nature, it has all the answers. Just because I happened to be able to source them easiest, I guess, I was buying original wool jackets from the 1950s. I was buying them at Portobello Market. And a one man's rubbish is another man's gold. For me, it was about age. It was about the attitude of people. And it's about how they're wearing the clothes, why they're wearing the clothes, and capturing a bit of their wisdom and empowering people to look at aging differently. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. The Victoria and Albert Museum in London has been described as perhaps the world's best dressing up box. It's got more than 75,000 items of clothing. And you thought you had a big wardrobe. Obviously, you can't try them on. But even so, this is still one of my favourite places in the universe. And whenever I go home, I always make a beeline for it. I actually once spent a week in the National Art Library, which is upstairs, and it was just one of the happiest times I ever spent. If I were starting out my career again, I would be a curator for sure. And this is the place that I would want to work. So I was pretty happy to see two of my favourite things collide in this summer's Fashion from Nature exhibition, which includes amazing historical garments as well as contemporary fashion by the likes of all the sustainable heroes. So Vivian Westwood, Catherine Hamnett, Alexander McQueen. Um, there's stuff in there from Christopher Kane, also Christopher Rayburn. And if you haven't listened to the podcast yet with Christopher Rayburn, you should. It's great. It's episode 29. Who else? Stella McCartney's in there, Bruno Peters, and many more. But the exhibition also looks at fashion's eco-footprint and the massive impacts of textile production on the planet. So yes, the V&A is taking on sustainable fashion. It's so great. And when I was there last month, I hot-footed it over there. It's the first thing that I did. And I also recorded this interview with the curator, Edwina Ehrman. Edwina specialises in 19th century fashion and textiles and also the history of London fashion and she's worked for many years for the V&A as well as the Museum of London. Now there's a book of this exhibition with a foreword written by Emma Watson and I love what she says at the end. She writes, regardless of our social or economic status, we can all dress and shop more mindfully and sustainably. It is so important and timely that we now reconceptualise what it means to wear and consume and what is fashionable. Good on you, Emma Watson. Emma is amazing, hey? The ideas that are raised in this exhibition start from what is fashionable. So it's about looking at how for centuries nature has inspired fashion. You know, florals for spring. But there is, of course, another side and it's the fact that so often 
if not always, making these clothes, textiles and accessories involves exploiting nature. And there are some really confronting examples. Everybody's talking about the 1860s muslin dress, which is embroidered with Indian beetle wings, thousands of them, and also about the really creepy earrings made from hummingbird heads. Um, There is a monkey fur cape in there. There's a muff that was made from albatross wings. And there's a hat that's trimmed with a little starling. I mean, to modernise, this stuff looks really macabre. But at the time, these things were considered gorgeous and exotic and fabulous, not by everybody. And the exhibition also tracks the opposition to some of these cruel and grim practices that were adopted by the fashion industry. Man-made materials that we use now seem a lot more benign. But are they? You don't have to see the exhibition to think about these issues and to look at how they play out in history, but also in our present, and to ask yourself, how do I want to stand in nature? What do I believe nature is for? Am I part of it? And if I'm inspired by it, how can I knowingly damage it for something, I mean beautiful clothes, that is basically a luxury, not a necessity? What can we do to lessen fashion's negative impact on nature, and even to turn it into a positive one. And we talked a bit about this in the episode with Bianca Spender that was, I think, number 41. And there are some more coming up that dig deep into these questions. As always, dear listeners, I love to know what you think. And you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Mrs. Press. And please do share the podcast with your communities. I'm going to start by saying, where are we? Edwina, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. I'm absolutely delighted. We're recording it in the V&A, aren't we? We are. We're sitting in my office. We've just had a quick look around fashion from nature. Now, in 2014, you were in Australia with the exhibition from the V&A, which you brought to the Bendigo Art Gallery, which was Undressed, 350 Years of Underwear in Fashion. That's right. And I remember very clearly meeting you in the cafe. And we were talking about things. And I said, but... The exhibition I really want to do is an exhibition about the relationship between fashion and nature. Tell me about the birth of that idea. Well, I've been a fashion curator for a very long time and I have always, always wanted to do an exhibition about the way in which fashion textiles have been inspired by nature. And I was really determined to get it into the programme at the V&A. And I succeeded in 2014, um, so I was incredibly thrilled at the time when I met you. I think listeners would be interested to know just how long it takes to get a big exhibition like this up and running, because we're four years later. Uh, Well, in 2014, I had the idea, and I got it through the exhibition senior management. And even to do that, what you need to do, if you need to come up with a pretty strong idea, some headline object, you have to be convincing. But then Undressed intervened, so I had just about two years working on Undressed, but part of the time I was working three days a week, not a full week, and I was incredibly lucky because I used those extra two days to go and work at the Natural History Museum, and this was incredibly illuminating. And then I really launched myself into uh, Fashion from Nature about 20, 22 months ahead of opening in April. Could you sum up perhaps the birth of the idea, but then talk a little bit about how it evolved? Well, when I proposed the idea in 2014, the exhibition was really going to be maybe 75, 80% about fabulous floral prints, amazing use of feathers, changing attitudes towards fur, 
But then over the next two years particularly, I began thinking this isn't quite right. It's not quite the right balance. I can't just tack on sustainability at the end of an extra 20%. I have to embed sustainability in the exhibition and that's what it's going to be about, but the context will be how fashion has always been inspired by nature. Because there are so many examples in downstairs and there are many in the broader context of the decorative aspect of nature inspiring the aesthetics of our clothes. Absolutely. And when I was choosing the object list, I did have at the back of my mind that many visitors would want to that's why they would come yeah for they the would beauty want to come for the beauty but if they came for the beauty they're also going to get my not so hidden message they were going to learn about the impact of fashion on the planet and that's really what the focus of the exhibition is so it really drills down to the fabric from which our clothes are made and ask how they're made how they were used how they were disposed of In this case, they came to a museum, which was lucky, and who made them? Do you know, I've never thought of that, but of course, in the conversation around sustainability, landfill fashion looms large, but here is a place it never happens. It doesn't, thank goodness. Occasionally things do deteriorate to the extent that we do have to pass them on, and sometimes they go into theatrical wardrobes, but even then, fragments will be preserved for the future. Yeah, love. So Edwina, Fashion from Nature explores the relationship between fashion and nature from 1600 to the present day. And I'm reading this from the catalogue and we'll share some links in the show notes to find out more and for further reading. But the exhibits show inspiration fashion draws from nature, but also highlights the harmful effects, as you've said, on the natural environment. But it asks these two key questions. Can you tell us what they are? Well, usually B&A exhibitions have messages. I have one message, which I haven't made overt, but I hope will happen. I want visitors to leave discussing, debating, thinking feeling curious, that's what I want to happen. And my questions are, what can we learn from the past to help us define a better industry from the future? I'm a historian and I was really passionate about the idea of getting out historical pieces to put today's challenges in a context. And when I was doing that, I thought, well, what can we learn from nature? There has to be a real, a real motivation behind getting out these amazing pieces. And that's what the exhibition sets out to explore. So how can we design a more sustainable fashion industry and what can we learn from the past? That's right. I love that museums give us that access and that inspiration to ask questions about learning from history. History's you know, it repeats itself, doesn't it? I mean, we can't change the future if we don't understand the past. No, I think it's very important we do understand the past. And I do think that there are lessons to be learned in the past. And one insight we can gain from the past, and our visitors have been quite surprised by this, is that the textile and fashion industry have always had an environmental impact. And of course, to begin with, in the 1500s, 1700s, that impact was far less great than it is today. But Rivers were still being polluted by dye effluents, by detergents used to wash silk. Um, so it was on a smaller scale, but that industry blew up in the 19th century into, into a massive industry, particularly in Britain. And then we can see the impacts in Britain that we have on a global scale now. Well, in London, in the Industrial Revolution, the air was so black that people got you know, couldn't breathe, sort all over your collars, I mean... It was disgusting, it was absolutely disgusting. It's why people, rich people, sent their laundry outside of the city to dry. Did they? they did, yeah. Because if it dried, it dried with smuts of, yeah. of coal dust all over yeah. it. Yeah, 
So they sent it outside the city, and they were doing this even in the 17th and 18th centuries, which shows how filthy it was. And London was a massive industrial and commercial centre, and it was very, very heavily polluted. Let's talk about materials. When we begin walking through the exhibition, there's a focus on materials, beginning with things like flax. Do you want to share a little bit about how you approach that and what we see? Yes, well, I I have this hunch that one reason we don't value our clothes today as much as we should is that we don't really understand them. It's all about surface and appearance. So I thought that if we could really drill down and take people back to what their clothes are made of in the past, they might start thinking about what their clothes are made of today. Alongside our natural materials. Which are? Silk, flax, wool and cotton we have put out the materials from which they're made. Very simply, so we have the silkworm moth, then we have the moth laying the eggs, then we have the silkworms and the silkworms spinning the cocoon from which we take the silk threads and then the pupae and then the whole cycle starts again. I bet there's people in the world who'd say, a worm? They do say a worm, yes. And also... You know, we think it just springs by... I read yes, this in my book, it's a line, but we believe our clothes spring as if by magic into our shopping centres and malls. We absolutely do. But even more extraordinary, when with the cotton balls on the floor of the cases, somebody who was setting up the exhibition said to me, I had no idea cotton came from a flower. And, you know, but that's actually, a revelation for some people. We're not told. We're not told. We, not we're not in, taught in schools so much anymore. And also, if you do ask um, shop assistants, most of them, I'm sure they would love to know too what things are made of, but most of them don't have a clue. So our search for knowledge is very hard. The consumer needs more agency. You all need to learn more. I'm going to pick you up on that word learn because you said before we don't want this to feel like a, you know, Mm. stuffy lesson and you, it doesn't I mean obviously the V&A is world class and the most inspiring exhibition mm. that I've ever seen ever are here mm. and you're transported and then you mm. come out and think yeah but it's interesting to have an exhibition that does have a strong message for change I mean I'm thinking about previous exhibitions here that have been my favorite for example David Bowie mm-hmm. or you say you want a revolution which looked at the 60s that yeah. was about putting clothes in cultural context yes. it wasn't really about saying or it was nostalgic it was about looking back This is about looking forwards and saying, let's do something differently. Is that rare? Well, it is. I suppose the exhibition has a political dimension and therefore it has to be about change. But that political dimension doesn't just spring into life in the late 20th, early 21st century. It is there throughout, certainly in the 19th century. uh, The case about fur and feathers talks about the early campaigners against fur and feathers. And that they're very important, and they had an effect. And um, certainly, one thing we can learn from the past is that education and activism can work. And when we move on to the upper level, we have my little activist island, which is the best I could do to cr- try and create a mini demonstration. But it's got posters, slogan T-shirts. It's got some of the heroes of the sustainability movement in Britain for sure: Catherine Hamlet, uh, Vivian Westwood foofy bubble wearing a jacket made by Katie Jones for Fashion Revolution. So it's fun, but it really is meant to get people to think and look. And behind them, we've commissioned this um, series of short films which look at earth, air, water. We start with clean air, and it gets progressively dirtier and nastier and so polluting that the humans in the picture are wearing gas masks. And for so that, really meant to bring home, you know, the predicament many people around the world find themselves in today. 
Let's go back again. Can you tell us the story of the early protests against fur and feathers or early reactions to? Because I'm not I wasn't aware of them until this moment. Uh, well, women were at the forefront of the early environmental movement in Britain. Uh, from the late 18th century into the 19th century, partly they were seen as women's maternal caring role. So women encouraged other women mothers to uh, tell their children not to steal eggs from birds' nests, explaining about the ecosystem in a very simple way. But by the time you get to the mid-19th century, the fashion for wearing feathers, not just in hats, but feathers to decorate your hair, decorate your garments, etc., really was beginning to have an impact. And men and women were becoming aware of this. And the early campaigns from Britain were quite local, actually. They were in a particular area where um, people had noticed dwindling number of seabirds, for instance. Mm. And so the first legislation in Britain comes in, I think it's 1869, which is pretty early. Gosh. But by the time we're moving towards the end of the 19th century, this fashion has just gone overboard. So um, people are using whole birds, bird parts, feathers, they're dyeing feathers, combining different bird parts together to make something even more exotic and special and rare in and the eyes of humans. Oversized. Yeah, huge hat, you know, draped with feathers. And so in 1889, a group of women got together, in fact, two groups of women in different parts of the country got together, and over tea, they decided that they were going to start a campaign. They were going to try to mobilise other women to stop this fashion. And some women were so passionate that they actually took a pledge not to wear any animal parts apart from animals killed for food. And in those days that included pheasant, for instance. And Did they have a name? Um, they were called the Fur, Fin and Feather Folk, which <laughs> is very quaint to our eyes, but that was quite a pledge to take. Um, Your job is the best. I mean, I've never heard of this, and I think I've read so many things about the origins of how we look at sustainability yeah. today, and certainly in the States, there's, I was writing recently mm. about the origins of the environmentalist movement in the States, and it's men hiking. No, I think, well, I think women were very, very important. And, I mean, women had always had a sort of a discreet political role supporting their husbands, going out campaigning for them when they were electioneering. But I think the whole idea around... The idea of kind of protection, protecting the countryside, yeah. protecting animals, that was seen very much as of, of part of, you know, women's role and, and how women should be. Now, to us today, we mm. don't, you know, stereotypes are the last thing we want to engage with. But in this case, it was a, a youthful stereotype uh, because it had a positive effect mm. and it gave those women a voice. And giving women a voice was very important because many of those women were also campaigning for the vote. Yeah. Uh, so they were saying, we want education, we want financial independence, uh, we want... Want to be able to do things without a husband signing something? Absolutely. And we also want to be able to lead. And this gave them a leadership role. And these feather groups eventually formed by 1891, they formed into the Society for the Protection of Birds. Get out. I never knew this. But even It came from women, but even earlier, 1824, was the Society for the Protection of Animals, which is really early. And the royal family in Britain were very good at lending royal support for these groups. And the first animals to be protected by law in Britain were cows. Were they? Well, it's rather shocking, isn't it, that the brutality to cows should be so great, to cattle should be so great, that they had to bring in legal uh, laws to protect them. I find that deeply shocking. Mm. 
not as shocking as the hummingbirds. The hummingbirds are rather very sad. So we have this box, basically, a box, and it contains 20 rather beautiful little hummingbirds, and they're called green-tailed terrain-bearer hummingbirds, and they have very, very long tails. And when and you tiny, tiny, and when and you see jewel bright, and when you see films of them on the internet, because I've watched films of many of these birds, they really flicker in the light. Mm. And charging. they look like they're wearing sequined collars. Some of them, I they know do. they're a different variety no, to the do. ones downstairs. Absolutely, yes. they're, they're so yeah. Ornate. But the sequined collars was what made them so special because they're iridescent, and so depending on the light in which you see them, the flickering candlelight or the flickering gaslight, they would catch the eye and draw the attention, just like jewellery does. And so grotesque that then we made them into jewellery. We did make them into jewellery. We made them into ornaments. We commodified them, basically. But this is exactly what these women were campaigning against. And they, it took time, but they did have some success. And by 1921, they introduced legislation that stopped the worst abuses. It wasn't watertight but it was a great step forward. I love the fashion industry and have worked in it my entire career, and there are aspects of it that still inspire me constantly. But there's also a history of grotesque sort of, I'm going to say crimes, why not? Because when we think about leopards, for instance, being used as fur, I mean, you, I don't know about the exhibition, but I've seen pictures of 1960s film stars wearing, oh, yeah. a, wearing a leopard. Yeah, well, it's I mean, very common. It was a status symbol. When we look at those bird heads made into earrings or mm. the beetle wings adorning a dress, it's grotesque, isn't it? And yet we found beauty as a society in the grotesque. I wonder if you'd like to talk a little bit about that. Um, well, it's an unnatural use of nature, for sure. And I think that... But we didn't think it was horrible, maybe. We thought it was exotic. Well, some people did. Mm. And that's what we always have to remember. So with the beetle wing, when people, when British people... You know, the exhibition is mainly about Britain until you get to the late 20th, 21st century when it goes very global. People in Britain first encountered beetle wing cases, these beautiful emerald green glittering wing cases decorating dress when they were in India and in South America. And people there, and they still do decorate dress with people there, used to leave wing cases to decorate turbans and faris. Almost like beads. Well, they were like... No, I think they're like... Actually, when you look at the colour, it's an emerald green, isn't it? So they are a form of jewellery. And, of course, these beetles are very abundant and they live in forests um, on the edge of a village of, so the children could be sent out to collect them. So they were very easily accessible and they provided a very beautiful form of decoration. And so when people... When European people saw them, they thought... They were different, and therefore, yes, if we decorate, I decorate my court dress, the dress I'm going to wear at court, with beetle wings, it will be reported, people will be looking at it, and I will make a splash. We still do that with fashion and status. We do. I mean, fashion can be used very deliberately to assert status. And as you say, with furs, furs were huge status symbols in the past. They were quite necessary in some cases because... They didn't have their Montclair puffer jackets and it was very cold on public transport and moving, you know, around London and particularly cold in some areas of Northern Europe. But they also had a status symbol because, you know, furs were graded from the most expensive sable, for instance, down to, you know, rabbit. And there were endless simulations of furs, so getting something to dyeing it, finishing it, to make it look like something else. 
for the pine marten hat in the exhibition, oh, no. which you've always, it's got little tails on it, which you've always described as fable. But I've been told by Fourier it is actually pine marten. Pine marten isn't cheap, but it's a lot cheaper than fable. Mm. So that person was trying to get away with it, basically, trying to persuade the people who for her that she had a slightly better hat than she actually did. Think about Eartha Kitt singing all those songs about, I, don't, I can't remember the lyrics now, but, you know, it's, um, I want a limousine and a Cadillac and I want a Zabel. There's something about just even the words that makes us yeah, feel we've made it. and mink, you know, the mink coat was what everybody wanted. Uh, my mother was, you know, she could never have a mink coat. You know, my father couldn't afford to buy her a mink coat. But, you know, she a mink stole, a mink hat. Now we find minks, but certainly foxes and mm. less expensive mm. furs, just languishing in flea markets and op shops. Op shops, an mm. Australian way to say charity mm. shop. Because nobody really wants them, because we think furs a bit disgusting. And rightly so, I would say, just to throw my mm. opinion in there. But do you think, Edwina, that now we could have sustainability as a new mark of status? I think we could, and I think we do in some circles. But I... Personally, slightly rebel against this. Ha! Huh? Because I think saying that sustainability is the new luxury is incredibly elitist, and I find that very offensive. And sustainability should be for everybody. Everybody should have good clothes, good, well defined clothes that don't damage the planet and don't bring harm and distress to those who make them. And I think it should be a right. Mm. And I think what we have to work towards is embedding sustainability in the production of clothes at every level. And that is a massive, massive challenge. There is no getting away from that. In the exhibition, we have one example of a chain store, which is H&M, an H&M set very transparent targets for increasing their sustainable output and they're very good at investing in companies that might help push sustainability forward that they believe in. Um, but the majority of the designers that we're showing are very high-end. But I'm not doing that to say this expression for about sustainable luxury. I'm saying that these companies are good examples of ethical ways to make fashion. And nothing in the exhibition, I don't think, is 100% sustainable. And maybe, the Adel- maybe the Emma Watson dress. It's the nearest you get to it. But most things are moving in that direction. And people are very open about that. But we have to keep moving forward. And we have to, if people are setting a good example and, you know, moving over to an alternative energy form, good for them. Mm. You know, so if we, you know, we need to praise people, I think, for making progress. Oh, I agree. But we have to drive progress forward. We can't get to the stage where we say, well, it's good enough. We have to keep on going further. But the fast fashion is the big, big dilemma. Before we get on to more about solutions, mm. tell us a bit about the Emma Watson dress, because it's always good to see a blockbuster frock in something like this. Yes, well, um, Emma Watson has been incredibly um, supportive of the exhibition. So she wrote a foreword from the book, and it's lovely, the foreword. It's Emma Watson writing about herself and why she became engaged with sustainability. So it's really important, and I was thrilled by it. And she also incredibly generously agreed to lend her 2016 dress, I think, yes, worn at the Met Gala. Um, it was defined by Calvin Klein to EcoAge standards. And every aspect of the dress was considered from the zippers 
to the lathe. And what it's known mainly for at the moment is the fact that the main fabric of the dress is made from recycled plastic bottles. But there's more to it because every single element was considered in through that yes, lens. Yes, and that's really important. And that's one thing she know. wanted. No, because every time it's flagged up in the newspaper, it recycled talks about bottles. recycled bottles. Mm. But every aspect of it, and the zippers, that's the really important bit. Because often you can get something that is pretty good, pretty nearly there, but it's the kind of zippers and the fastenings that let it down. And also it was deliberately made in three separate parts, so in theory you could wear the trousers separately or the bustier oh. separately or the drain separately. So it was very, very carefully thought through. And the other nice thing is that this is now part of Emma's personal wardrobe. I was going to say, it's lovely that she owns it because recently there was a lovely story that mm. came out of Cannes when Kate Blanchett wore mm. a dress, Armani Privé gown, that she'd worn four years previously mm. on the Cannes red carpet and everyone said, oh, well, that's a great moment to say, mm. let's not throw our clothes mm. away. And of course the answer was no one's throwing away a couture dress. Yes. But then yeah. there was a British Vogue op-ed on that, mm. which did point out rightly mm. that most celebrities can't rewear their dresses because they borrow them. Yeah. Exactly. That is very, very true. And that's why I was actually quite surprised in a way to learn that this was part of Emma's personal wardrobe. But she said in the foreword to the book, she was very proud of it. Mm. And that's quite right. And I think that she is such a good role model. um, And a Vogue cover girl, a Vogue Australia cover girl, as you all know. (laughs) (laughs) We're galloping towards the end of this interview because Edwina must dash off to a conference. But... I want to just talk a little bit more about some of the less beautiful aspects of this exhibition because they're so interesting. I'm talking toxic fashion. Tell us about the hat. Yes, toxic fashion. Well, we have in our collection... So if you you were to come to the V&A... Which you you must until... Uh, no, no, but if you can come, if you come to the V&A any time. Ah, but you, when's the exhibition? Is till um, if till January the twenty seventh, twenty nineteen. But if you come any time, you can make an appointment at our archive, the Cloth Worker Centre, to fee whatever you want. So you can go online and then you can choose what you want to fee. Now, should you have a passionate interest in top hats, I'm afraid you are going to be a little bit disappointed because when those top hats come out for you to look at, I can guarantee you that a portion of them will be wrapped in plastic with a big skull and crossbones sticker on them. And you will really, you will be able to handle them because you can't damage them through the plastic, but you really won't be able to look at them. You won't be able to see inside them to see the make of label. And the reason they're wrapped in plastic is because they are contaminated with mercuric nitrate. We have a wonderful example in the exhibition, which we rewrapped very beautifully. It looks more beautiful than the most of the ones. Um, but it is amazing. This hat was made in 1873, and it's still toxic today. So to touch would be dangerous? To touch it would be dangerous, because you can absorb mercury salt through your skin. And they use them in what? They use them in felting, in hat felting. So it was perfect. And this hat is made of beaver felt, so it's a very good quality. Um, yes, <laughs> but it's very good quality for, for felting. Um, but even so, to speed up the process, you know, speed is so important. Let's churn things out, with, even then in the 19th century. To speed up the process, they use mercury salt, mercury essentially. And it made the hair softer and more malleable and mesh together more quickly. And then... The people who are mainly affected by this problem were the makers. And that is why in Alice in Wonderland you have that phrase that if never loses us, we never forget this phrase, as mad as a hatter. 
No. But the Hatov actually did go mad. They got tremor, they suffered from anxiety, and in the worst case, of, they did literally go mad, which is appalling. But also that the wearer of the hat would have been affected by it. I for he must have been because because you're putting it on your head. I well, mean, it, is li- it, it is lined, but you are touching it, you're adjusting it. Um, your servant who had to put that br- hat, brush the hat to keep it clean and put it away. So a whole raft of people would have been affected in a small way by it. Okay, Edwina, at that time, people really weren't aware, and it seemed like the wonders of modern science. Well, sadly, they were aware. Oh, were they? Yes, that's the tragic thing. Already by that time, they had... keep having to put my jaw off the floor. Yeah, I know, it's terrible. So already at that time, they had uh, government commissions into occupational health hazards. So... One of the most striking instances is the use of carbon disulfide. So we associate that with making viscose rayon, but it was actually used in the vulcanisation of rubber too. And the health hazards of that were noted very early on. And in France first, uh, where this particular process was much more used than in Britain, but then in Britain. And then over and over again, over successive decades, and particularly when we start making viscose in the early 20th century, it comes up as an occupational health hazard. But if anything done, no report from reports, not until much later. And it was only really when the public started rebelling in general against man-made and synthetic fibres in the 70s that Courtauld, who was a big textile producer in Britain, said, we've got to make something greener and cleaner. And that led to Tenfold, which is made in a circular system with much low impact solvent. You are the best person, Edwina, because I have never known that the reason behind the Alice in Wonderland story. But it I is, mean, it's a terrible story, it but is a terrible I'm story. interested to yeah. know because we think it's just, I don't know, as a child, you just think it's something magical. You do, you do. We well, just think he's a funny character, don't you? And he's mad. But actually, the sad thing is, he really was mad. And he was mad through t- unnecessarily mad. That's the... F- Awful thing. Gosh. You mentioned the evolution of the viscose process to make now closed loop systems, for example, mm. Tensile, which Lensing made, makes and which um, can be highly sustainable. Let's yes, talk more absolutely. about solutions. Well, the big challenge if we face waste is the one we're very aware of at the moment because of plastic. Uh, so in the exhibition, we show a whole raft of designers who are upcycling materials, they are using dead stock. So materials were just cast on into a bin in the factory and usually sent to landfill. So they're working with remnants of manufacturing and then end-of-line fabrics. They're working with recycled materials, recycled garments that are coming from charity shops and things like that. Can you give us an example of a designer? Well, the designer I think it, who is really interesting is Reiko Fudo, who works in Japan for the big textile design house Nuno. And Japan has an absolute treasury of unusual fibres that could potentially be sustainable. But what Reiko was doing was looking back to traditional, what we might call cottage practice in Britain, when the very outer threads of the silkworm cocoon, which are thick and gummy, weren't discarded, nothing was discarded. They were used. And she thought, how could we do that in a commercial way? And so she and her colleagues, they modified machinery, existing machinery, and they worked out how to turn this really kind of tough fibre 
into a viable thread that Wowie. can now be woven with silk or linen or whatever. And we have a wonderful example of a coat and dress in the show, uh, which have the kibiso, it's called, silk woven into it. Um, and on the floor of the cave, we have a great big bundle of this silk and a little pile of silkworm cocoons, just to make the point that, you know, it's determination that brings about change. You know, she was saying, look, we know it's viable, we know it's useful. What can we do with our existing machinery? It's very pragmatic. It wasn't, it wasn't invent a whole new machine. It was, okay, we have the machinery. We need to work out how to modify it to work with this fibre so we can use every last bit of the silk. Who knew silk had waste? I didn't, and that is something I really didn't know. I thought that the whole, you know, whole length of the silk was always used, but no. This particular bit around the outside was always just chucked. I want, that's a, probably the answer, but I want to finish up by asking you about what you learnt during this process. Oh, a huge amount. But it's been a real learning curve. But the problem is that now I need to learn so much more. Achieving a more sustainable world, a more sustainable industry is an incredibly complicated, demanding challenge. And it does require everybody participating at every level, I think. And to a degree now they are from mm. government the UN, down to the consumer. But my personal gripe is as a consumer, because I've really, I am trying hard to modify my shopping habits, and I find it really difficult. You know, I see something and I think, and I'm feeling a bit down, and I think, oh gosh, that's lovely, I might try it on. And I really have to be very careful. Same. But when I was trying to choose a new dress to wear for the opening party, Oh, what, did I was, what did I wear in the end? I borrowed a dress in the end from a very kind colleague. It was designed by Osman, who's a personal friend, but it was from a colleague had bought it from him. And you borrowed and, it from and a friend? I, borrowed I mean, it that's from a lovely. We can borrow and share our wardrobes. We should do more, much more. And also, uh, we had lots of events around the opening, and I went to, I looked at a kind of rather good shop they have near here, where uh, there was a wealthy lady who lived in this area, Profit their garment. What's it called? I'm going to go. It was caught. Yeah, I don't think I can reveal. <laughs> not telling I, you. Not telling you. I think I should be. I should be very much criticised by colleagues here <laughs> if I give away the secret. But it's not very far from here. Anyway, so and then like there, I bought a beautiful skirt. You know, it was a very sensible price. But it is the sort of skirt that's very well made. If will crepe, it'll last for a long time. Yeah, but I want to know more about. I want better labelling. When I was looking inside these dresses, and you have to rummage and find all this fabric to find the, the label, and then the shop it assistants... It doesn't tell look, you anything. It doesn't tell you anything, but the shop assistants then start tracking you around the shop because they're not quite sure what you're Well, they think to. you're actually from another shop trying to find out what they've got so they, you can copy oh, right. their plans. Oh, is that I what they think? because my mother used to have a boutique and people used to come and do that. Oh, right. You well, know, take, you know, take pictures, what you got. Oh, I'll get that. I see. Oh, well, we, need I, new, I, we need a new system I, where we we're transparent and where system. we share knowledge and we're open source and we're... Yes. So that is what I would like. I would like a better system of labelling, but I understand that it's a very, very complicated subject. But nothing is insoluble. That's the best end to this interview. Nothing cannot be fixed. Or there is nothing for which there aren't creative solutions. That's right. And fashion is endlessly creative. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Well, it's lovely to see you again. Thank ah, you for coming. Thank you. Come to Australia. Oh, I'd love to. <laughs> yep, anytime. Oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that I'm defending you. I told them all that they are wrong. 
thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you where, okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends don't feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you Because I love you